Welcome all to another episode of the End of the World podcast with your host, Anton Roberts. Hope you're all well. This week's a great, a great one. We are speaking with John Holmwood. He is a professor of sociology at Nottingham University. Um, he's an accomplished author. Um, he has worked on inequality, colonialism, religion, um, quite a wide range, really. He was also an expert witness in the now infamous um, trials of the Trojan Horse Affair, which we'll also get into, which is a really in- interesting area. Um, and he also wrote the book, Countering Terrorism in British Schools, The Truth About the Birmingham Trojan Horse Affair, um, which was published by Policy Press. Not only that, but we're also joined by a colleague of mine um, at the Policy Evaluation Research Unit, and his name is Dr. Gavin Bailey. Um, I thought I'd pull him over just, just, just because some of this is quite, it's quite technical and a little, a little bit outside my area. So, um, I thought I'd help sort of platform this really interesting discussion today around prevent and sort of extremism more generally. Um, so Gavin is a, is a, is, a, is another expert in this area. Um, he's worked for years in extremism and counterterrorism. Um, he works around marginalised communities, young people. Um, you know, ex- extreme for extreme forms of, um, you know, sort of like Islamist activism. Um, he's been a member of, of many sort of like think tanks. Um, he's worked at uh, Leicester and uh, North and Northampton, so quite a, a wide range. So, um, yeah, welcome both to the show. Before we get into the kind of the questions itself, I, I always like to start with kind of a personal grounding as to you know what kind of attracted you to working in this area. So, if you give us a little bit of a brief a, a sort of a, a outline of, of of your kind of favourite area, what you, what you know, what you sort of tend to research and what pulls you to that like in terms of your passion and interest then we can get into the nerdier stuff that's all right okay thanks very much uh, Anton um I think I'd, what I begin by saying is that uh, this isn't a very long-standing interest so I've always been interested in issues of sociological theory issues of public sociology but it wasn't until I was appointed to a professor of sociology and head of department uh-huh. at the University of Birmingham that I became interested in what it would be to do public sociology in a city like Birmingham. And in a city like Birmingham, it meant confronting the fact that this was a ethnic minority majority city. It was a city where there was a strong commitment to strong religious commitments, uh, not just uh, Muslim, but also Sikh, uh, in particular, a small Jewish community large Catholic community and so on. So mm-hmm. historically, it's been a long-standing city of migration, <clears throat> a city of ethnic minority uh, religions, and paradoxically, from the point of view of sociology, which I see as a secular discipline, or at least has a strong self-understanding of itself as secular, is that Birmingham was probably about the most religious place uh, in England at that point, in terms of the uh, local expressions of religion. So it struck me that if I wanted to engage with uh, local communities and engage with them around the standard issues of sociology, inequality, injustice, and so on, I needed to understand their language. And that meant stepping outside my comfort uh, zone with the language of rights and secular discourses and actually get into understanding the religious commitments and the religious languages of 
local populations and how they would think of uh, addressing issues of inequality and injustice. So that was the background <clears throat> in which I became involved with various kinds of practical engagements with local religious communities with uh, uh, and it wasn't really to do the sociology of religion, but I would put it to think about sociology and religion and how we could have a symmetrical dialogue between the two. And that led me to become interested in how religion was taught in schools and how it was expressed in schools, and particularly about in terms of programs of educational improvement. Oh, thank you. Well, that was an uh, amazing uh, intro that I can, I can I can really see how your own personal like passion actually pulled you like it wasn't just like a academic sort of you know sort of interest in you clearly they, it was chiming with your own kind of ethos of equality which is really cool um I think we've also been uh, joined by Gavin um can you hear us Gavin I I think I think you've you've also met Gavin previously I think I think I think John uh, at some sort of meeting, and Gavin mentioned it before. Yep. We've been in the same room. <laughs> uh, BSA at some point. Yeah. Yep. Um, I can remember, um, I think it must have been four years ago when you had a couple of the teachers with you. I, yeah. Yeah, it was an event around the uh, Trojan horse play yeah. and, uh, and what it was to be involved in presenting sociology through uh yeah a dramatic uh, uh you know a, yeah was a that, that was that to bsa i think yes it was yeah yeah um so for those who don't know uh, gavin is, a, is a, a friend and colleague of mine he works at the uh, policy evaluation and research unit at, uh, at mmu with uh, myself and uh, i asked i asked gavin to just join us today the main kind of i suppose the the main focus of um the uh you know this sort of podcast today is a is a is a, is a report a, a people's report around prevent and um i suppose the the criticisms which we'll which we'll get into in a bit but i think just 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 because it kind of requires a bit of grounding um it might be nice if we could talk a little bit about the the, the trojan horse affair um because one of those things where you know it, it's it's so it's been so influ influential in our in, in our policy and in terms of education and even socially but it, it, it's it's definitely not particularly understood outside of our um you know reasonably small uh, academic world so i thought if you if, if you could john in, in, a, in a in a bit of a, a nutshell talk to us a little bit about what the trojan horse affair is well <clears throat> Uh, at, the, at the outset, let's say it's something of a moral panic. So it's a moral panic organized around the leaking of a letter to the uh, to the press. The letter was initially sent to Birmingham City Council and it claimed that there was a plot to Islamize schools in Birmingham. That plot was led by uh, governors and teachers involved in the school that came to be at the center of, the, of attention Parkview Academy, and the idea was the plot was going to be exported to uh, Oldham and to Bradford. The letter, uh, the Trojan Horse letter, purported to contain documents that were being sent uh, to co-conspirators at, uh, at Bradford. Uh, the letter was widely regarded as a hoax, and indeed, it's very hard to find anybody involved, whether they believe in the Trojan horse uh, plot or not, who believes the letter was anything other than a hoax. 
So the curiosity is how the letter came to have such a particular hold. And so I'd say the other factor, and this relates to the podcast presentation by the serial New York Times uh, 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 recently, is that it was also being promoted quite strongly by humanists within Birmingham, British Humanist Association, Humanist UK as it's now called, who uh, were presenting the views uh, of what they uh, said were three uh, uh, whistleblowers uh, at uh, Parkview School, employed by Parkview School. It would turn out that these three whistleblowers were all members of the same family so the independence of the of uh, of that uh, process was you know was somewhat challenged but nonetheless a combination of the two things led to uh, a series of uh, investigations ostad uh, inspections of 21 schools two education funding uh, agency reports on academies within the 21 uh, uh, schools, the Kershaw report on behalf of Birmingham City Council and the Clark report, most importantly, on behalf of the Department for Education. And the culmination of those reports, a lot of leaks to the media in a context where teachers themselves, by the circumstances of their um, suspensions as this was going on were forbidden to talk to the media so you had a continual media uh, stream of stories leaked from these uh, different reports and the you know final uh, outcome i think was that everybody uh, accepted that the uh, that the reports had established that something serious was going on wasn't quite clear what was going on and that was going that was in a sense deferred to um separate misconduct hearings but those misconduct hearings wouldn't begin for another year and in the meantime legislation was introduced on the basis of the truth of the uh, uh trojan horse uh, allegations and particularly the Clark report and yet even within the Clark report uh, the findings are presented as allegations allegations that formed a pattern but none of the allegations is itself confirmed or established as true on the basis of the uh, Clark report so when you come to the uh, misconduct cases themselves that's the first occasion for those uh, findings to be tested within court and the first occasion for teachers to indicate uh, uh you know their side of the story if you like mm -hmm. it's, it's it's nothing short of tremendous that that such a um you know inconsequential piece of piece of paper has such a monument monumental effect upon our society i'm i'm, I'm not sure if you if you caught the podcast going um the new york times one. yeah i mean i, I think with regards to that, though, it's always worth pointing out who um, Clark of the Clark Report is as well. Because of the, um, I mean, my take on this, this kind of thing in general is that, okay, you might have concerns about safe, you know, general safeguarding or general issues to do with the way that governance happens. 
Um, what's that got to do with um, getting police officers with terrorism expertise involved? You wouldn't do. It's not very normal, is it? Let's say. Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. It, 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 it seems. Yeah, I mean, overkill was is. It's just yeah, it's, it's it's unbelievable. It's like the the level of like like escalation is just it's so out of proportion. It seems it seems almost like 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 farcical when you when you're kind of following the story along. Um, you know, it's, that 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 could even uh, happen. Even especially I think I think the part where they where they find um is it a a, a a a jihadi video and it turns out just to be like like an excerpt from like Panorama or something. Um, but they were they were using educationally uh, and like the hysteria that can kind of be whipped up there um it it truly it truly it truly, it truly is an, an amazing podcast and i would re- i would recommend obviously after you listen to this one to go and subscribe to that one and uh and uh, check it out um was so 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 was this because i'm i'm also aware um of your uh other book john because obviously you wrote the um uh, countering extremism in british schools uh, the truth about the uh, Birmingham Trojan Horse affair. You know, why did you decide to um, you know, write that? Was that kind of like a bit of a call to arms sort of thing? Did you feel you needed to to you know to answer those you know that that, that moral hysteria as you kind of talked about before? What I was mean, going on there? I, I didn't. Uh, you know, it was written together with a colleague Teresa O'Toole, and it wasn't written as a call to arms really, but a, in a sense as an exercise in public sociology. So one of the interesting things about being a um, an expert witness is it's a very specific role within the courts and it's a kind of interesting role from the point of view of modeling what public sociology might be that is your obligation you you may have a particular side for example i was an expert witness for the defense but the role of the expert witness is not to uh, put forward a view it's to uh, explain certain matters of fact to provide certain interpretations for the panel or for a jury to be able to come to its own uh, uh, decision. So in that sense, it's not, the expert witness is facilitating a judgment rather than himself or herself making a judgment. So what I thought was that given that the cases had collapsed and part of how, and they collapsed in a context in which I've got all the transcripts and all the evidence that was presented because that's one of the consequences of being uh, an expert witness. And in fact, these are all public documents once they've gone through the uh, court process. So we were in a position to be able to provide an explanation of the background to the case, what factors seem to be important in interpreting it, and also presenting in a way, an interpretation in relation to the evidence that had put forward in the in the case, because the troubling thing was that the collapse of the case was like a you know was in a sense a domino effect. One case had collapsed, the high court, or one case had been taken to the high court, and the high court had quashed the verdict. So that was then pending. They were going to go back into that case once the senior teacher's case. Uh, was concluded. Then the senior teacher's case collapsed. And when it collapsed, there was really quite worrying response of journalists, which was to say, well, it's collapsed on a technicality. And then if you look at the technicality, the technicality 
was a systematic and continuous misleading statements by lawyers acting for the Department for Education or its agency, the National uh, uh, College of uh, Teaching and Learning, as it then was. And the case sort of collapsed on the grounds of misconduct of the lawyers, if you like. And yet the outcome was the press continued to say, ah, but the teachers uh, got off. Birmingham Humanists, for example, or uh, Humanists UK, said it was a disgrace that the, uh, the case had collapsed and it should be, and there should be an inquiry. Significantly, uh, as the collapse of the case seems not to have had the consequence of making people uh, uh, reconsider what happened, Humanists UK have backed off their call for an inquiry. Now they wish people just to shut up about the you know, the thing and their, their role in it. So there's, it, there's a kind of disreputable aspect of the reporting. And that's what uh, the podcast also picks up. Isn't it interesting? And isn't it interesting after the podcast that no British journalists have wanted to go back and consider this thing? So what you have essentially for me is something that is very strongly felt as an injustice amongst the... Uh, Muslim communities and so on, and yet they are prevented from being able to have an open and public discussion of precisely what the nature of this injustice was, and that was in a mm. sense what the book was designed to do. Sorry, sorry. And then the play subsequently was another, uh, you know, attempt at publicising that. Right. Okay. I, I mean. It's 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 great, obviously. You've you've uh, attempted to, to like go 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 against that kind of like narrative, but it kind of seems like, especially from like a media point of view, that it wasn't it wasn't like convenient that that uh, you know like legal legally there wasn't anything there. Uh, obviously, it, it was it, it's a it's a much more kind of you know ex, exciting, more powerful story that there's that there's this you know extremist threat going and burning through all of our all of our schools. I don't I, I don't I don't know, Gavin. Do you have any thoughts on the on the kind of like the media's uh, response at the time to uh, you know, these places. I think it, I mean, it, interestingly, that kind of brings us on to prevent in general, really, is kind of... I wish it was what, our next question, so... Roll, roll on there, you right. know, what is the media's role here with regards to kind of how much of a... What does a threat really look like? Um, because, you know, nor, like I said, normally, if you have... Can, you know, school, 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 let's say we were talking about schools or in the case of prevent, you'd be talking about, you know, individuals and children. Well, mm. concerns appear left, right and centre of all different kinds, don't they? You know, and the social services might be involved, police might be involved, whatever. And usually these things are dealt with quietly in the background. Sometimes they turn out to have substance Sometimes they don't, and people are moved back to, if it is a, a false positive, um, then it becomes, the idea is that you move to the status quo ante, aren't you? The person is told, well, actually, sorry, we made that, you know, we phoned you, it's all done. 
And you would never hear about that in the media. But certain aspects of society do end up being, um, I think, the you know the moral panic has already been used. It, um, this this is not the only one, but um, the media would talk about it if in a particular school the authorities decided there was something worth investigating, if it was a particular kind of thing, but not others. Yeah, they they they'd naturally only only like report the most the most the most extreme or scandalous, wouldn't they? So it it, it definitely paints a artificial picture um for sure i mean i i think i think it would be really useful just 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 because obviously my, my audience is i mean it's academic but fairly general so maybe we could start with a, a sort of a, a definition as, as to what prevent is meant to be at least <laughs> and then we can get into how how effective that is john, john do you mind starting and then gavin if you want to add anything we can do that as well well it's really curious because what I would say is what's quite problematic, and this has been pointed out by uh, a lot of uh, counterterrorism experts, particularly those involved as independent reviewers of terrorism legislation. David Anderson in particular says that uh, we have a proliferation of terrorism offenses and we have a proliferation most recently, that is over the last uh, 10 or 15 years. It's not as if we haven't had terrorism previously, issues of Northern Ireland, IRA and so on. And we haven't found it necessary to have either an extensive array of counterterrorism of terrorism offenses or a set of policies like prevent. Indeed, we still don't have prevent in Northern Ireland. So a, a place in which there is evidently concerns about uh, extremism, terrorism, and so on, prevent doesn't operate. So I would say the first thing is we should consider whether this proliferation of legislation is necessary and simply uh, violence, criminal offenses are simply dealt with in, uh, in ordinary terms rather than in such a, terms of sort of deep anxiety, if you like, or manufactured anxiety. But prevent is peculiar because what prevent is about is something which is an imagined precursor to an offence that may take place. So it's not about violent extremism, it's about non-violent extremism. And as such, it's not an offence. Even as non-violent extremism, it's not straightforward that what is judged to warrant consideration as if it might be non-violent extremism is in fact properly characterized as such. So uh, religious expression is understood to be pro uh, potentially problematic. It's not a view that it is problematic, but that it might be, and therefore it warrants consideration. That is, if a young person you know, takes on a new kind of religious identity and so on, they will be considered for whether that uh, is a danger sign. But you're dealing with young people who are going through all sorts of changes, changes and uh, trying out different views and so on. And you've got a set of them judged as potentially problematic problematic from the point of view of whether they should be defined as extremist 
And then if they are defined as extremist, whether they should be considered as precursors to uh, uh, violent extremism. And so you're incredibly long way away from a criminal offense. And because there's no uh, thought of a criminal offense in terms of the behaviors that are being monitored, you have the problem that there are no safeguards for the individual being considered in this way. So they can be interviewed by the police, into a young person can be interviewed by the police without their parents being present, without a responsible adult being present. We've seen the, the scandal of uh, child Q. The scandal of child Q is not simply the strip searched aspect of it, awful though that is, but the fact that the police were involved with no responsible adult. That was problematic because she was being considered for a criminal offense and therefore uh, there should have been a responsible adult involved. But in the cases of prevent, there is no requirement because the individual is not being considered for a uh, criminal offense but they may well be interviewed by uh, uh, counterterrorism uh, police officers. It's, it's, it's a, it strikes me as a, as a really bizarre space to occupy that you obviously you've not committed any form of crime, but by definition you have less, you know, less sort of like the you know procedural rights. Um, it, it, it strikes me as 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 bizarre, and obviously I'm, I'm assuming that that prevent is focused on in a, in mostly a school kind of education context so it's those though that are mostly underage i assume right well it's across the board so it's in health services youth work mm. universities and so on i think it's most worrying because it's comprehensive and universal across schools in england so that's so yes and schools from kindergarten upwards so, you know, 27% of all prevent uh, referrals in 27-2018, that, that choose that date because it's prior to um, COVID, were for pupils under 15. So it's, and uh, the reason why uh, responsible adults and parents are not being involved is of course, partly because the suspicion that is being put for is that the parents themselves are under suspicion as being those responsible for the radicalization that might be taking place. So you have, I think you have not only suspicious communities, but also once you think that through, the suspicion is being extended to families. Okay. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. You. I mean. You mentioned that in the uh, report that we'll that we'll go into in it, um shortly. You know, that that kind of changing like distinction from targeting the individual like we would in a normal criminal case, right? And then instead, the community itself becomes uh, sus. You know, sus suspect as it were. Um. I don't know. Gavin, did you want to add anything there? Before yeah. I mean, it, it, in a sense, it kind of has some parallels with some other other crimes where kind of ideas of community and or family are invoked as partially causal or partially, you know, involved. So, I mean, I was thinking of um, drug dealing in particular, that, you know, there's a kind of an assumption that if, a, if you've got a 
we'll say with you know child Q is a good you know an example of where you know somebody's invoked drugs the assumption would be for some for most sections of society that the family would be horrified to find out that their child was involved in drugs but that wouldn't be the case if you came from a family where that was part of your family lifestyle so it's got these kind of i don't know there's something a bit weird there isn't there about like where's that causal chain coming from and the invoking of community in particular is where i think it gets really quite odd because uh, as though we're all kind of stuck in properly boxed communities where um the stuff comes from parents or elders within your street or some other kind of stereotype of how the world works when um i don't know teenagers in general tend to get their influences from their friends and peers and all over the place don't they so it's um there's an imagination of how the world works there um a kind of traditional ideas of community let's say i mean i think it is i mean that's great the interesting thing is that traditional ideas of community apply more straightforwardly to muslims in britain than they do to others so that for example you're much more you know if there were critical things said about the um you know parkview school by pupils it was that teachers knew your parents they knew each other other people knew and and so on so you are in a sense thinking of something that is more densely knit it's also was also a school in which parents were invited into the school for example this you know podcast cast is taking place during Ramadan and iftar would be uh, parents would be invited to prepare it within the school and so on so it would be you know there would there was quite a connection with the community and it's interesting talking about say drugs and um, knife crime in a similar context because you could say well these are offenses which are relatively immediate if you think of uh, prevent as a kind of stop and search process then st stop and search for drugs and for crime obviously it involves profiling that has become prob problematic but it also involves definitely finding stuff so there is an offense there and there's an offense which uh, is relatively adjacent to the process of stopping and searching the offences in the case of prevent are incredibly distant because what so suppose you find somebody who you think warrants a report to channel all you have found you haven't found anything that's against the law all you've found is that uh, there are some attitudes of concern and that's what i meant when i said right at the start that we have lots of terrorism offences and those terrorism offences include uh, advocacy of violence uh, having uh, material uh, having symbols of uh, uh, of extreme of violent extremist groups and so on 
So it's not as if what's being found within the prevent process is any of that material, because you'd Im move immediately out of out of prevent, out of channel, and into a specific charging with a uh, an effect. Mm -hmm. But when I describe why the school is the way it was and how the was organized around it, is the school and the schools in Birmingham were concerned that they were in very poor, deprived areas in which there was knife crime and in which there was drugs. And the school conceived itself as a protection against these things. So what you have is the paradox of, you know, one hand, you want the engagement of communities in issues like knife crime, drugs, and so on. You have the school well integrated with its community, parents well integrated with the school, and them all having a sense that uh, their uh, commitment to uh, achievement within the school is actually a protection of children. And what they're told is that their ethos is in fact a safeguarding problem. It's, 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 the, it's, it's the idea of, of, of the idea itself, right, is what is, is what somehow criminal of a, or a suspect. Um, it, it's, it's really interesting to hear, like, hearing, you, hearing you both speak, because I was a, I, I worked in primary schools and, and, and secondary schools for like, you know, well, well, more than a decade. So I was I was there while all this was coming in. Obviously, not understanding the context of what 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 was going on, um, and I can I can still remember having to try and teach these British values to my 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 students in a, in in a, in a school that was already um, you know like like predominantly um, Asian Muslim who who already identified as British anyway, um, yeah. and I can I can I can still remember how deeply uncomfortable myself was and the other staff members were and the confusion on the students' faces of of. Of, of of one what was wrong with them by kind of you know some sort of weird like imp implication um but you know and to like what they were missing i think i think you talk about it as like a, as a cultural deficit or, or or something in your in your in your report john so it's, re it's really interesting beyond being on the other side and, and hearing where that was coming from um because it was it was it was deeply uncomfortable as an educator at the time i can tell you uh, really <clears throat> Well, the, the, sorry, Gavin, were you going to come in? I was, so, but you, so you, you, you have been through the training, then. Yeah, yeah. As we all have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm obviously, um, it's a different like context, but it, it was definitely more pronounced in the primary and secondary um, sectors. For me. And the training itself is, I, I find. I mean, the last time, so I've done as a um, a school governor, I've been in the rooms, you know, and had the. Um, here's the big safeguarding talk, and here's our one um, kind of page on prevent. And in a sense, it's kind of too much and also not enough because of the context of the people who are in the room anyway, who may have their own prejudices anyway, but also aren't actually that interested in these issues particularly other than the fact that um they've been told that they have to and maybe they read the newspapers and they know a bit about what is going on in the world but it's not there every day nobody becomes a math teacher to be thinking about how does how what what are the limits of dissent in a liberal society 
and you're, you're a math teacher. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can remember in like, like sitting in, in, in safeguarding meetings because I was, because I was, a, I, I was like a mentor, like a TA, learn support, assistant head of year. So I, I was like routine at different levels being in these meetings, that, and you know, there was never, there, there was always a, a confusion around like problematic behaviour in terms of like, okay, can you give me an example of, of what you actually mean? <laughs> like yeah. by that, there was a deep subjectiveness so yeah so I can as you're saying there were there were certain maybe certain individuals that might have existing prejudices that were just okay yeah I'll you know because it's so open and so vague you can just take almost what you want out of it um but yeah it's 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 it's, it's, it's really interesting so John did you want to come in on that or can I ask you my next question no no that's okay <laughs> um oh I, I did want to ask you because as, as you kind of mentioned John there in terms of like I don't know. It, it 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 was almost like a perfect community for them to target, in, like in a sense. What what does prevent do in terms of targeting the other communities? Because that my my own research kind of looks at extreme like gender presentations. So I'm just so so I'm just wondering. You know, when I was kind of researching in in terms of like incels and those who obviously have, have engaged in acts of terrorism from from the from the other side, that there seemingly wasn't any kind of mention um, of those. But it seems like they they would fall under the like prevent kind of scope um yeah well, maybe talk a little, a little bit about that well they do fall under the prevent scope i mean the mm. difficulty with prevent is that of course i mean and its advocates presented as something positive about prevent that anything can in a sense be made to fit under it that is so long as you designate something as problematic then it becomes problematic just by virtue of designating it as such and the prevent framework is flexible and can uh, accommodate it. So the so-called uh, ERG criteria, which are the ones that people are supposed to be looking for, can be applied to any kind of ideology or, or, or activism. So you could make uh, climate change activism part of it because you just look at the nature of that kind of, of, of ideology and so on. So in a sense, the paradox of prevent is in order for it to work in inverted commas, it has to be broadly defined. And so it operates like a funnel that you put lots of, the more you put in the top, then you can come to finer judgments as people are fed through. So the, uh, all the literature that I've read on it indicates that it's incredibly difficult to come to and this would be a properly academic term intersubjective judgments of validity about the application of the erg criteria that is you have to be trained but you need training that is way beyond the training given for reporting something into the prevent process so the idea is as you come filtering down through this system more refined and competent judgments get made. As soon as you're filtering down in the system, then you have to imagine there are no harms done in the process of how wide you drag the net. No pupils left alienated as a consequence and so on. So, so, uh, but of course you've taken the pupils out of their context or whatever uh, uh, the identification processes, whether it's school or health services. So, so teachers are not themselves reflecting back upon this person. The individual is reported, goes through a process, comes back into the 
school setting is either annoyed or not about what has happened and so on, and the school is not exercising the judgment. So in all the things that get somebody reported, a teacher could just as easily have said, stop a minute, let's examine what you're saying here. When you say that, what do you mean? And using it as an opportunity for education, discussion within the group. So at the same time, you have this official policy that what we should be having is challenging discussions within school, except if something says, if somebody says something which is deemed possibly reportable, then it has to be taken out. As soon as it's taken like that, it's now out of context for everybody making the subsequent judgment as you, as you go through. And of course, because no offenses have been committed, any of this, even as you're going through, even if you become one of the 5% who actually gets identified as a positive uh, case warranting channel referral, even at that point, it has to be voluntary because you've committed no offense. And the current uh, uh, agitation in the press around this is, why does it have to be voluntary? It has to be voluntary because we still live in a free society. That's why it has to be voluntary. And as uh, Conor Geerty says, the problem with prevent is that it operates precisely in that space we used to call freedom. And that's the real difficulty. That's why it's unlike uh, uh, stop and search for knife crime, stop and search for drugs. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's scope can be, well, so 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 wide in this case of kind of, a re, of sort of extreme Chinese whispers, it's passed on from one person to the next in a ever problematic kind of fashion. I can see you gesticulating furiously then, you really want to come Yeah, and I think there's one of the things that is going on there um, with regards to say the way that, you know, your public sector professionals are operating with this. Um, so, you know, we could use teachers as the example, is there's questions about kind of the false positives and false negatives and what it means for kind of responsibility and risk and who gets the blame if something goes wrong. And I remember once seeing a, um, it was um, a flowchart, which was about, um, you know, what to do if, you have concerns and at each point there, there was a kind of do you, do you have you considered this and then it kind of carries on up this kind of ever narrower kind of process and at no point was there a, a, a an arrow pointing out of the flowchart to say no further action which basically became the thing of well it you know I'm looking at this, I'm looking, the teacher is already being, um, is in a society where suspicion is falling. And then it's basically be, oh, it, the, it's a, one of these things where you're always told that if there is the slightest doubt, then you should do something and tell somebody else and re, re, refer to somebody else. Now, if everybody does that, then it can only really go further and further up the chain. 
because nobody can ever be sure of anything really, given you know most of the time what um, things have you know could be interpreted one way or the other. And I think John, that you know that th that thing about the cost of the false positives is really interesting because the costs of the false positives fall on the individuals. Yeah. Whereas costs of false negatives, the cost of a false negative is that somebody who will go on to do something bad is never stopped and then something bad happens and society gets into a, a tumult about it. Effectively. Yeah. But those costs of false positives fall on individuals, fall, up, fall on individuals all over the place. And if, you know, we could have billions we could have millions of false positives and everybody would be alienated. And at some point, somebody needs to say, this is over, the, this is ridiculous. But also I think that the, you know, we, there's an ambiguity in prevent because it's also operates through policing and prisons, as well as operating in, let's call them free spaces as well, schools, health services, youth clubs, uh, and other parts of the, community. So when we say that somebody might have been stopped, all the cases are that somebody was referred to prevent. Now remember, we've got masses of referrals. So the fact that somebody was referred to prevent in 2014 and went on to do something in 2021, that's the David Amos case, you're really a considerable distance from it. Uh, Salman Abedi in the Manchester remit bombing should have been referred to prevent. That's one of the newspaper discourses. Why did Dis Didsbury Mosque not refer him and so on? He was, in fact, a, a subject of interest to counter-terrorism police extensively in the period up to uh, the uh, uh, outrage itself. So the failure is not really a failure of prevent. There is actually a failure of policing and a failure of post-prison services. So the uh, Fishmonger Hall case, uh, was that a failure of prevent? Well, there was no, um, there was no problem relating to the no problem of a lack of powers of the prison services in setting up proper probation, follow-up, and so on. There was simply a failure of the material infrastructure. So what I think we've got is a collapse of spending, whether it's spending on youth services, whether it's spending on uh, uh, probation services, and so on, and Instead, we're getting a statement that it's a responsibility of the community to report members, responsibility to report people on really flimsy grounds. And actually, the facts of the matter are that because of the failures of the material infrastructure, they can't handle that level of reporting. And even where they have people under really serious consideration as subjects of interest because they are linked to known terrorists, they take them off as subjects of interest. So the police 
in dropping uh, Salman Abedi as a subject of interest could have referred him to prevent. They didn't. But what we have is, well, let's have the Daily Mail and the Telegraph telling us how the failure is really Didsbury Mosque. So people who do have the welfare of their communities at heart are made responsible for any failure. And the authorities use that to get themselves off the hook of their own, uh, of their own failures. And I think that's what will come out in the reports on Manchester Arena. And it's really interesting that uh, the press has dropped Manchester Arena. So the recent dispatches program about the failures of Prevent, uh, for the last uh, six months, we've had Salman Abedi, one of the uh, failures. Suddenly in dispatches, he's not one of the failures anymore. Why? Because lawyers representing some of the families at uh, Manchester Arena are saying the failure is with the security services. So better not go there. So, uh, so, so not only is it deeply offensive, but it's also completely ineffective. <laughs> well, the, the other, th I mean, the other thing about those spaces of freedom, um, as you've described them, is that when it when it's um, the work of teachers and youth workers, they're also supposed to be safe spaces where traditionally they're supposed to be safe spaces where people can say things which um, because they're young, they may say in the wrong way, they may say something offensive, they may say something racist, and it's up to the youth worker to handle that and to handle it sensitively, trying to keep everybody, trying to um, keep the group together, keep the, have their best interests, and are their best interests served by saying well such and such said something therefore the immediate thing is to write it down and to start a investigation it, it definitely compromises process. doesn't it? it definitely compromises those 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 like relationships that like yeah. that, that communal social capital it just kind of sabotages it completely. it's supposed to be a relationship of care yeah and i'll give an, ex uh, an example i think it's a really you know nice example because it humanizes in the sense of what it is children are, who they are, and how they are. And that is the Trojan Horse play, fantastic play by uh, Matt Woodhead, Helen Monk's Lung Theatre. So I was sort of touring with them. And that was you know, great fun getting out of the day job and going around with them. And I won't say the city where this took place, but it took place in a, 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 an English city, big theatre, absolutely full, local schools in the theatre, it was packed. The play starts and there's a really good uh, uh, opening of the play, you know, I am the Trojan horse, I'm a terrorist, I'm huff, I'm gonna puff, and I'm gonna blow your school up. And the whole theatre erupted with cheers, uh, I'll huff and puff and blow your school up. So, uh, Go through the play, the play ends. I am the Trojan horse, I am a terrorist. I'll huff and puff and blow your school up. Silence. That was how the actual content of the play had impressed itself on the pupils who were 
there for a laugh and then taken in by the seriousness and the um, sympathy with which the story was played. And that's what's being denied uh, uh, to, to young people is that ability to, you know, cheer at, you know, I mean, and not be considered suspect. Yeah. Because, because there are some kids who don't like school. Yeah. And no kid who, uh, you know, even if you like to school, you'd cheer at that moment because there'd be certain peer pressure to do so. I mean, you know, so, uh, yeah. But we don't, but we shouldn't consider not liking school as a precursor to no, no, no. anything else. No. But there's the potential. I mean, that's the other thing that there's a, there's a, there's a classism within all of this where um, particular norms about how education, how one reacts to the police turning up to your door, how one views society and government. And the middle class norm is one of, um, this is all part of, you know, we're, it's connected and you're comfortable with all of that. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that the the locations, you know, the, the, the problem of locations that that prevents find are, are usually poorer communities. I'm assuming. I mean, there's. I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but I'm assuming that there's a correlation well, there. We don't know because since 2015, we haven't been allowed to know what the uh, prevent priority areas are. Right. Oh. I mean, we submitted 273 freedom of information requests as part of doing the people's review of prevent. And the great thing about submitting that many requests. You know, we were asking about uh, what were the prevent priority areas. And it's always been said, no, we can't disclose this, you know, under the uh, security arrangements. And then suddenly what appeared in the uh, inbox was a list of all the prevent priority areas in England. So I thought, wow. So if you want to know what they are, they're in the People's Review of Prevent. But the interesting thing about them is, obviously, they, we're out of date in terms of census material. So we've only got the 2011 census. A couple of months' time, we'll have the 2021 census. Three quarters of Muslims in England and Wales live in a prevent priority area, compared to the, a third of the population as a whole. Of course, a third of the population as a whole includes Muslim Muslims. So that shows you the nature yeah. of the, you know, disparity. In uh, if you're a Muslim, you're likely to be in a prevent priority area. And of course, the we're increasingly getting a centralised organisation of schools in England. Leave Wales out for the the moment. So regional commissioners and so on. And uh, the education secretary has just announced that by uh, 2030, every school in England will be an academy. That means there will be no local authority responsibility over schools. And the responsibility will be entirely centrally from the national commissioner through regional commissioner. That's exactly the same structure of prevent. So 
you have got an alignment and an alignment which is extraordinarily centralized in the management of schools, the management of prevent. They're going to, I think the Shawcross review will recommend stronger security involvement with prevent and local authorities, local communities will have no mechanism for a say over either their schools or how prevent operates within their locality. So it's a very, you know, so it's not simply that prevent operates within the area we used to call freedom. It also operates with one of the most centralized systems of control within Europe. And, and, and certainly, um, sorry, yeah, you go, John, sorry. And certainly more centralized than in Scotland, mm. where hardly any prevent referrals take place. I'm I'm just conscious that you haven't really spoken much about the people the the people's review, which I think was might 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 be nice. So what what was your intention with the with that review, and then we can talk a bit more about well, that. I think I, I mentioned at the uh, uh, the beginning we have all sorts of um, uh, mechanisms of uh, protection and so on. So counterterrorism legislation, policing is covered by rules about evidence, rules about how you know a procedure and so on. Because prevent is about things which are not, don't constitute an offence, there is no statutory oversight of prevent. So 2011 was introduced by a review conducted under the auspices of Lord Carlisle in 2011. It has not been reviewed since 2011. 2015, the uh, prevent duty was dramatically extended. There was no review on the extension of the prevent duty. It was on the back of the Birmingham Trojan Horse Affair. That was the only example of a problem of extremist entryism into schools. And then through into the, uh, you know, 2019, 2020, and so on, increasingly draconian legislation around immigration, borders, and so on. So we have a, uh, a prevent infrastructure, which is not has not been subject to scrutiny. The independent reviewer of uh, terrorist legislation has continually commented on that. And it's not under that person's remit. The United Nations rapporteur has commented on it. And, and so the Shawcross review was the first opportunity for that to be a review. And immediately it is, uh, you know, by appointing Shawcross, well, by initially appointing Carlisle, then appointing Shawcross, it was clear that they weren't properly going to consider evidence against prevent. So a lot of organizations boycotted it because of the appointment of Shawcross, known uh, Henry Jackson Society member, very extreme uh, 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 advocate of the clash of civilizations uh, uh, approach and so on. So uh, our concern was, well, we've boycotted it, but that puts you now on a situation that the evidence that you would put against it isn't going to be put forward. So, okay, the government won't listen, 
but that doesn't mean that we don't gather the evidence against prevents drafted as a report and put it forward because reviews and reports are not simply for the government that's part of the corruption of our political system and you can hear pretty patel you can hear that corruption in pretty patel's description of the reviewers her review it's an independent review that means it's not your review pretty patel and their management of the review shows that they have no sense that they are accountable in, in any respect so the people's review was intended well let's in a sense start constructing accountability for ourselves because uh, this is a really problematic moment in democracy i think as i i will i will include the link to that to the full report in the uh, episode as well um so in terms of like some of some of the recommendations then because um I'm, I'm aware that we have also run over time. Apologies for that, but it is a really interesting area. Um, in so yeah, in, so in terms of the future of 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 prevent, I know I know in obviously in the in the report you recommend it should be retired, um, but it's ineffective. And but in terms of I suppose the reality of 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 the situation and the government's engagement, um, assuming that they don't cooperate in that sense, is there any way that prevent could be? improved to make it more fit, fit fit for purpose or is it a complete lost cause uh, and this obviously is it's, it's to both of you no well, okay I'll, I'll, <laughs> i don't think it can be improved and the reason why it can't be improved is because you you cannot countenance something which is designed to pre uh, prevent and restrict things which do not constitute offences so so long so so long as we have freedom of this is a government that pushes forward the idea of freedom of speech but it doesn't wish to hear some people's speech there is a significant government cancel culture on ethnic minority communities in britain whether that's black lives matter or whether it's uh, uh, people arguing to decolonize and you know get statute or wh uh, whether it's um, uh, you know prevent itself. This is uh, uh, government authorized cancel culture, and it's really serious. It's not only the people's review. You know, we're not uh, you know radical. You know, I, I certainly don't see myself as a dangerous radical. Anybody who knows my sociological works that you know will see me as a you know he's a Durkheimian and oh what does he re previously work on Tolkett Parsons oh my god gosh the, you know, <laughs> he's a dangerous person so the um so it's not a, a radical position and the all-party group in Scotland last year called for the dropping of prevent for exactly the same sorts of reasons so I would say dropping prevent is a reasonable thing to do if you think that one of the risks of uh, uh, is uh, alienated youth and spend some money on young people <laughs> and spend some money on young people just because young people are worth spending money on I mean for no other it's good in itself so there are a lot of ways in which you can actually do things which will have unintended consequence of reducing risks if you like but they're more likely to succeed because their actual focus is 
wish to do well by young people, to improve schools, to improve their communities, to Im improve their mental health and, uh, uh, and so on. It's, we're in a, a, a distributive, a, a scandal of distributive justice in relation to generations of young people. And we're going to uh, reap the whirlwind of that. But there is no need to do it in a way that pathologizes young people. We should just uh, do it on the basis of a communal sense of solidarity with them, whatever their opinions, their religious commitments, or their, uh, you know, their general attitude. Yeah, it, it, it seems so patently obvious that if if you kind of you know foster like connection between young people and older generations that you'd see an improve uh, you know an improvement in society. It's uh, it's one of those odd like those oddities when when they start uh, shutting down all the youth centres and whatnot. They start having increases and all sorts of, all sorts of problems. If you, if you give people places to go and you know, interact in a positive way, you're going to see good changes. So, um, yeah. Gavin. Yeah, um, so to kind of to add some detail to that. Um, okay. One of the things I did before I worked in universities, I was involved in the evaluation of a youth programme that was set up nationally, um, that was set up, um, it, the particular issue then was the worry about um, young people who are not in education, employment or training. And suddenly it was, well, what we're going to do is we're going to have a programme of youth projects where the that there's a very, very explicit aim of taking some people who are neat and at the end of the programme we will see how many of them are no longer neat and what it does is it takes instead of and I think this is the, the point in a sense the whole thing is done upside down and starting from the wrong impotence of avoiding harm as opposed to trying to promote good and that what we what we have is the funding then goes to all of these different bits which are supposed to okay so we've got this which is going to stop um, knife crime this bit which is and again people who get referred into some of these programs haven't necessarily been convicted or even suspected of you know of being involved in crime but maybe they know people etc so it, it's got those kind of we the nets are widened and forever widened it's the, it wasn't just children that were neat but sometimes it was those that were at risk of being neat and so what we do is instead of um saying here's a universal offer for all young people to have some opportunities to do interesting stuff with their peers it's here's a load of specific projects where we're going to control what you do and why you do it because we've decided that we think you might be a problem at some point we've got no evidence that you're necessarily evidence that you're going to be a problem in the future but we've we've got you on our radar and we're going to get you into these little things and I, my question even then was, well, what if, how do you prove, what if it's all predicated, if the funding is all predicated on proving that it does something, then what happens when, I don't know, a recession comes and lots of those kids are unemployed? And they go, oh, well, the youth serve, the, these youth projects didn't save them all from being unemployed, so we close them. 
and then you've got nothing left. Whereas you could have just said, let's start from the ground up, assume that people are generally good and we will help them to make better lives for themselves by funding social services, funding education, funding youth services, funding mental health provision, etc. Am I, am I to assume from that that was a dismantling uh, prevents? <laughs> it's starting, it, start doing doing things from the other end, I think is the, the thing. And, yeah. and I think Shawcross will go in the opposite direction. So I think they are, you know, they've always had this thing, we need to separate uh, community engagement from security. So they're going to emphasize security rather than community engagement. But then they're going to say, oh, well, we need to do stuff on community engagement, but it has to be effective. You know, and then you're back in the same sort of mix up. I mean, I find the very term not an employment education training neat, incredibly interesting. And even within the government's own discussions, I mean, so the ONS defines it uh of ages 16 to 19 and it's as if you cannot find in any of this that uh you're obliged i mean education is now compulsory yeah. to the age of 18. so there's no discussion of needs that says well how can anybody be neat given that the compulsory school leaving age unless you are going into training or some other alternative was 18. And that shows you the nature of the chaos of the English educational system, that it has no mechanism for identifying and ensuring that people get the training, the education, uh, the engagement that the law requires uh, them to have. Yeah, to be completely off topic, one of the things that I find completely bizarre about that is that when the school leaving age was moved from 16 to 18, the um, the age at which provision for travel to an educational establishment wasn't moved with it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and the same when you look at um, kind of subsidised travel for 16, 17 and 18, and it's like we well we don't we don't it's like we don't care about young people enough to invest in them. Yeah, and Gavin, you raised the um, issue, Gavin, about the issue of class, and of course the issue of class comes in that you know I try to explain to people the reason why uh, there are you know you have sixth form colleges and uh, uh, you know and schools that are all through to. Uh, a level and so on and some that stop at 16 is to do with a past in which schools were not necessarily expecting their yeah. pupils to go on uh, to it so it's primarily an issue within poor areas but of course you are not guaranteed as a child that you can or as a young person that you can leave one school at 16 which is when it ends and get into a sixth form college and uh, and so on and indeed one of the things we found in the prevent review was that people's record in relation to prevent whether or not they had been deemed a positive the fact that they had been recorded was an issue that 
pupils were warned, well, your record will potentially travel with you to the next place. And, you know, we had cases of uh, young people not being able to get into a sixth form college because they had a prevent, uh, they'd been uh, through a prevent process, even though they, the prevent process did not lead to, so, even though they were false positives. So that means that they could become leaked? Yeah. Which would that mean then they, the, 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 pro, the other processes for, well, somebody's neat, therefore perhaps they'll have to turn to crime in order to make themselves yep. a living. The new processes then would, would start probably automatically. Yeah. Or inevitably, maybe not automatically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems like it's yeah, almost creating the, the, the people they're trying to find. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I think it will be a serious issue for the group that they all the newspapers are indicating oh well, let's back off from the uh, issue of the far right and so on because i think that's much more where uh, detachment from uh, education uh, training is, is taking place amongst white working class youth rather than among brown working class youth if you want to put it that way what i mean is that and then I just want to just I just I just want to say just 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 because we've gone we have gone gone quite a bit over and I'm conscious of both your time I'm I apologize. Yeah, no, you did discover it. it's uh, yeah treasured horse is something I'm really willing to talk about. <laughs> no no I, I I feel I feel like we need, we need to do Mar it, several parts to this conversation. Don't it's don't the ancient mariner. Yeah. Marina. yeah. Well I, I I just like to thank you both 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 John and Gavin for for graciously giving me your time today um for sharing your your knowledge and expertise on all things prevent thank you thank you thank you thank you both for that and thank you for giving oh, me your time thanks Anton. <laughs> thanks gavin thank you and you've been listening to the end of the world podcast with anton roberts plus guests if you'd like to leave a message, please do so after the bleep. Like, comment, subscribe, because knowledge is for everyone. Oh, no.